Today's episode is brought to you by Kindle. Great spellers come from great readers, and that's why Kindle was the proud presenting sponsor of this week's Scripps National Spelling Bee. A single-purpose Kindle e-reader holds thousands of books, ensuring young readers always have a book with them. Features like WordWise support comprehension and vocabulary development, while Kindle Free Time awards achievement badges for reaching reading milestones. To learn more about the ways Kindle inspires a child's emerging love of reading, visit Amazon.com slash Kindle for Kids. This is the Book Riot Podcast, weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 212 for recording on Thursday, June 1st, 2017. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky. We're coming to you from bookriot.com. Hello, hello. You know, what's notable about this week's show is that where we're not... We are not at BEA. We are not at BEA for the first time for both of us in some years. How long has it been for you since you were uh, at BEA? This, I went seven years in a row. So this is my eighth, would be my eighth year. I'm calling it my BEA Jubilee. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> BEA-cation. Um, yes. uh I think my first one, I went June of 2010. So I guess this would have been my, or yeah, June of 2010 was my first one. Was that your first one too? That was my first one also. Yeah, uh, yeah. I had been blogging for all of six weeks. Uh, uh, at that point, um, yeah, and it was well, only because that was before we knew each other. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. Uh, did you, we both went to BloggerCon? Did you go to BloggerCon that year? Yeah, I don't remember. I don't remember if I did either. I can't. I can't. Remember. It's all we're so internet old that I know. like 2010, 2011 is such a haze to me. But it would have <laughs> been it would have been BEA twenty eleven yes. that we met. Yes, 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 yes. Um, and so uh, you know. Usually we'd we'd use the um, we would record live to tape from New York to get or I guess like Chicago or whatever. Like sitting too close to each other, right? In a right, hot right. Room. In a hot in a hot room. What do I do with my hands? Um, and we talk. We'd use the occasion to talk about publishing State of the Union. So maybe we'll do a little bit of that in just a minute. Let, let, actually, let's do a little bit of that, but let's save it because we. I want to get do a little follow up before we get to our first sponsor. And in fact, the little free library follow up is also too long. For the fall spot, so we're going to bump that down. Just a buy, right. couple of buy button thoughts people had okay. been thinking about buy buttons. Um, basically, I think people were thinking a lot, a lot along the same lines that we were, which is it's a weird situation. Like the difference between new and like new is sort of like you know if uh, what you don't know can't hurt you. If someone's read mm-hmm. it or thumbed through it and you can't tell, you know it's it's a bit of a problem. In that regard, only insofar as that's difficult to police. But everyone, I think, seemed to be kind of on the same page about it's hard to imagine a situation where this is a problem at any kind of scale, just because where are you going to get the books? Uh, You can't print the books for cheaper than the publisher, so it's difficult to counterfeit. I guess you could counterfeit the books and then charge a few dollars cheaper and then ship them like... The margins aren't that great. I mean, it's very difficult to beat. So unless you find a, a stack of thousand copies of, I don't even know, Little Fires Everywhere by Celeste Ng. I'm just thinking of that one because uh, there's big uh, signs for a BEA. That's a big front list literary fiction title, for example. It's hard to know where, where it's going to be uh, a problem. I guess if someone sold finished copies that you get from reviewing that someone brought up is like, that's a possibility. You certainly could do that. Um, but you could do that before. It's just it wouldn't win the buy button. And each person, I mean, I guess unless we all pulled all of our finished copies we get in the mail book right together, we'd have maybe four of a given title. It's just not that mm-hmm. many. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I, I think that was interesting. And, and there was a lot of sort of uh, 
stand-ins for other worries about Amazon feedback that we got. Yes. Yeah. So, which I thought was maybe more telling. It's like, if this is about Amazon, not about this particular action, which right. is totally fair, but that's this what it's like about. This is like that marital fight about the dishwasher that's yes. not about the dishwasher. Yes, exactly. It's about deeper anxieties. Mm-hmm. That's what, like, my overall response to a bunch of the reactions that I received as well is that, like, the arguments that I got were mostly slippery slope arguments, but there wasn't really a starting logic to them. Mm-hmm. Like, or the logic that started them was a misunderstanding of how that buy button works already and what you would really have to do to like pose a threat um, yes. to publishers or to established, uh, like, you know, mainstream Amazon mm-hmm. sellers by just being like a normal Joe. It is interesting that some of the things Amazon does or wants to do or could do are already done by places we like and don't have necessarily critiques of like the Strander Pals, um, you know, sell used and new right next to each other on the shelf. So they mm-hmm. compete for the buy, which is sort of like competing for the buy button. Um, I know in both shopping at both places in both case, or in both places at different times, I've seen galleys for sale, which is, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know what the legal standing of that, but you're just not supposed to. It's not, it's, yeah. it's, it's dirty pool, like whatever. It's just not, yeah, it's verboten, basically. I don't think it's actually illegal. I don't see I how do it see, can be. Like every year around conference and BEA season, mm-hmm. you see like a spate of people reminding attendees of BEA, like that you can't sell your galleys online. And it does say like, in a badge on the front of the galley, mm-hmm. you know, like not for sale. Right. But I don't think that that's legally enforceable like i don't think there's a law on the books about how you can't sell early I, I don't think it's just so a publisher either. being like yeah. don't sell this book it's not done yet it's an honor system thing but like the strand i well i don't know if the strand the strand sell used um galleys housing works definitely does i've seen them there now again yeah. i don't want to do a blanket indictment maybe it was sure. just my random every time i go they have galleys but that was the one off but you know they're definitely there and i don't know how much vetting they do i don't you know i doubt someone from grand central is going to come knocking if they see one of their galleys there's a hey strand what are you doing yeah it's usually like you know as long as you're not selling the galley before the book's publication date and like therefore violating a one day lay down or something Right. right um you're probably fine and when i've seen them for sale in indie stores it's been for like a dollar mm-hmm. you know yes. because it it is a different thing there might be typos in it the cover isn't finished it's not in very good shape and i have been in some indies i think i've seen it at least twice where they were doing like buy two hard covers get any galley from our galley pile for free yes so they've commoditized galleys and even if they're not selling them right um, but, but anyway, yeah. if that stuff, if galleys appear, if a bunch of galleys appeared on Amazon, I think people would throw it, throw a fit. They'd be, they'd be upset about it. So there's sort of a, Amazon doesn't pass the cat or the, the other places don't pass the categorical imperative thing. Like a Kantian, like if everyone can do that, if everyone did this, it would be okay because they just don't have the scale, which I think is the slippery soap argument you were sort of alluding to. It's like, well, Amazon could do X, Y, or Z. And because they have such scale, it would be a problem, even though those things are done other places and no one really talks about them. Um, just because, you know, as pals, the pals and strand, even though they're the two largest independent bookstores, uh, single, into single, uh, standalone bookstores in North America, I don't think we, we don't get like spates of, uh, you know, what, strand is ruining books just because they don't have the reach. Whereas Amazon in that position, that the the length of their lever is so long right. that anything they wanted to move with it suddenly becomes, 
I think interesting about ethics and um, the business and kind of a bunch of unstated assumptions about how books are bought and sold. But this is one of those cases where suddenly it seems like, well, if they did this X or Y or Z, they could do something else. I, I, again, I don't see what the, I, do, I don't see where the boogeyman is, though. I certainly am keeping a. I always keep a watchful eye on Amazon. I'm not mm-hmm. jaundiced when it comes to Amazon, but I have one eyebrow ready to be raised at any time. I guess is how I, I would describe half my. Half cocked. You have a half cocked eyebrow. Half cocked eyebrow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so we do our first sponsor, and then we'll get into other stuff here. Yeah, we have Third Love back this week. It's really hot here in Richmond now. Like summer is officially here, and so I have been aware personally of how important it is to have a bra that fits well and is comfortable. And Third Love wants you to know that when it comes to bra shopping, it is all about finding the right fit for you, not fitting your body into the shape that some of the other stores want to shove you into. There's only one lingerie brand that offers bras in sizes A through G and some signature half cup sizes, and that's Third Love. They are built using thousands of real women's measurements and super smoothing memory foam to create bras that fit better and they feel great. And they really do mold to your shape. It's not memory foam that like, you know, what your bed might be made out of, but they're very soft um, and the bra does mold to your body. There's a perfect bra for everyone, and you can find yours in just seconds by answering a few simple questions using Third Love's Fit Finder. This is really easy to use. It asks you a few things about your sizing, and then it just spits out recommendations based on your body shape for which bras you should try from their collection. You can try any one of their best. Oh, excuse me. You can try any one of their best-selling bras for free. For 30 days right now, just pay $2.99 for shipping, and one of their signature 24-7 bras is on its way to you. Cut the tag off, see how easily a perfect-fitting bra fits into your life, wash it, wear it, forget that it's on. I know you don't believe me that you're going to forget that you have a bra on, but it's possible. If your Third Love bra isn't your new favorite, you can always return or exchange it for free. Go to thirdlove.com slash bookriot now to find your perfect-fitting bra and try it for 30 days. That's thirdlove.com slash book riot find your new favorite bra for free little free libraries follow-up um, last week we talked about um, a paper written in the review of radical librarianship i can't remember uh, the li- radical librarian review something like that um link in last week's show notes basically critiquing um little free libraries as a enterprise and, and not saying they're evil or anything like that but that let's be careful about what we're expecting them to do, what we think they do. And I think that the best argument is if there is some replacement value activity that's going towards little free libraries versus, say, public libraries or school libraries or things of that nature, maybe we should watch out for that because, and again, this was one heat map they did in Toronto of where these little free libraries tend to happen is they are tend to be in places already well-serviced by public libraries, and those kinds of places also are fairly well-off financially, so already have tend to have more access to books just in their own home, things of that nature. It's been a long, interesting week-long of discourse with you guys um, about this on Insider Slack, on email, on Twitter, and other places. A lot of interesting thinking. Um, Some of you with Little Free Libraries defended, I think, rightly so, and understandably so, little free libraries as a as an enterprise. Um, and there was also some skepticism of the company and a whole bunch of other things going on. 
I'm not sure I take away anything new. I did want to clear up, or not clear up, but add a couple things to the mix that I thought was interesting. One is, um, I can't re- one listener uh, emailed to say that part of the fees of that the Little Free Library collects both so that you can use the name legally, they've trademarked it, Little Free Library, or buy a pre-made or a, a, a ready-to-assemble Little Free Library. Part of that money goes into an impact fund where basically the Little Free Library uh, Corporation then distributes that so that people can build their own Little Free Libraries, get subsidized, they can get they can get books, they can get the materials to make one. So if they can't afford one on their own or have a difficult time afford one on their own, they can make one happen. So sort of redistributing some of that little free library money to people that maybe don't have it. So that's one thing I want to say. That's one thing where the funds go to. Another thing, a couple of people said, well, you know, they charge, but they're a 5013C, they're a nonprofit, so they're not a corporation. Well, first of all, you can be a corporation, be a nonprofit. Second of all, I've been a part of enough big nonprofits, quote unquote, that I don't... I treat a nonprofit and a profit in terms of an organization with the same sort of eye. Like I went to Columbia, $12 billion endowment. They did things with money that I would never sanction in a thousand years. So that that, that nonprofit status doesn't give you a free pass in my book if you're a nonprofit. I I still expect you to do different things. Not to say that they aren't here, but a couple of people say, well, they're a nonprofit, they're a nonprofit. It's like, well... Okay, sure, but you know you can still have the head of your nonprofit get paid five hundred thousand dollars. These these things happen or more, as in the case of Columbia University. So I just want to sort of get that. I understand that that's what's going on here. I think the librarians, um, I, I found, and tell me if your sense of this is right. The people who are librarians are also we saw ready to be skeptical of little free libraries too. Does that resonate with what you saw happen this week? Yeah, I didn't see anything that looked like, oh, all the librarians are just down on little no, free libraries. No, no, but no. I think that most, like, in my experience now, I'm doing Book Riot for about five and a half yeah. years and getting to work with and talk to a lot of librarians. My experience has been that they are very finely attuned to and aware of and they're very passionate about the place of libraries in the community mm-hmm. and what libraries are intended to do and what librarians are trained to do that really no one else does in the community for free um, for anyone who wants it. And so there, to me, it doesn't look like, um, it's not like petty competitiveness. No, 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 no. Um, which uh, I think that the article we were talking about last week had a little tinge of yes. like, it was a little bitter. There was a yes. little tinge of uh, like turf war to it, but mm. most of the librarians that we've heard from in the interim, it does not have that flavor. It seems like, you know, some concerns about those similar concerns about like, does a little free library really do what little free library purports to do by um, addressing book deserts and supporting community literacy or uh, like on the skeptical end, is it just a place where the person who runs the little free library is putting out the books that they don't want anymore. Like what is the quality? I think this came up on the insiders slack. Like Mm -hmm. what's the quality of books that are available in a little free library? Is that really a community service? And there were some interesting points made uh, on both sides of that, including that like a kid who doesn't want to talk to their school librarian or a public librarian about maybe a sensitive issue might come across um, titles that would be helpful to them in a little free library. But that's also kind of like, who knows if that magic. Yeah, I, I, I guess it's technically possible. Uh, yeah. Likely, I don't know. So, some some people also, I, I, it wasn't really a, a changing the goalpost, but more of like, well, if you if you lower the 
I guess, bar of what a library is supposed to, a little free library is, is supposed to do, then, you know, it's, it's a statement as much as it is a utility, if that makes sense. Like, which, which I, I, I think there might be some truth to that, but that's not what little free library, the, the, the organization says. I mean, what they're, what we do is we provide, uh, let's see, our staff is dedicated to increasing book access and forging community connections by helping people around the globe start and maintain little free library books exchanges. I think the, the critique of it that I am most sympathetic to, and I think I'm coming around to is if you take out the middle of that sentence, increasing book access and forging community connections, if that's what they're trying to do, is all this effort around little free libraries the best way to do that? Maybe not. I think Mm -hmm. I'm ready to say maybe not. Now, it's not bad. It's not evil. Uh, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to sort of write my congressperson or something and try to get a ticket, you know, change zoning or something. But I, I think that's the thing that if there if there is a core, I think there is a core of legitimate critique coming out of this, which is increasing books access and forging community connections. I'm not, I, I'm just not sure that this yeah, is the we, way to go. If you're trying to optimize your dollars, that's right. I don't think this is the way to go. Now, if you're trying to do something else, which is about awareness or making a stand or something else of that nature, I, I think. You, you're probably in the right ballpark. But as long, I, I think that's what it is. Like, be clear about what it is that's actually happening versus what maybe the magical thinking happening might be. Right. And we sort of approached that last week as well. Like, if you have a finite number of uh, literary activism hours and literary yeah. activism dollars, and your goal is to increase access and community literacy stuff, mm-hmm. then your little free library is maybe slash probably not the most effective use of those limited hours and mm-hmm. limited mm-hmm. dollars. You could point them towards your local library or a literary, uh, you know, nonprofit or, um, you know, something else. Not which is also like I want to be clear. I think we both like don't want to upset the little free library. No, people. I don't want to upset be on both yeah. sides. I think it's an yeah. interesting thing because it what's is. happened is like people feel like that there aren't enough places for people to access books in public. Like that's the, I guess what the root cause of the little free library movement, you know, in, uh, nurtured by this organization is really done. I guess what's interesting to me is what is the root of that desire to do this? And is the root of that desire being served in this way, right? Or but, is it, right. or is it, or, you know, what is it that people expect? Like if I put a library, for a little free library in front of my house, what is my dream scenario happening? It's a little, well, it's a little less clear to me what that's yeah, about. I yeah, I think it's interesting that, especially if the numbers that we saw on the map in the Toronto yes. little free library breakout uh, in that piece last week, if those, if that pattern holds in the U.S., that the little free libraries are most often appearing in neighborhoods that have well-funded public libraries, then it's interesting that those residents have the feeling that like public access to books and reading. And I think that like my guess about what's going on there is that you can have access to books without having a feeling of literary community. And you could have a gorgeous, well-funded public library that you use without 
getting a community like warm, fuzzy reader connection feeling from it. Mm -hmm. And I think these little free libraries pop up often as a, and as like an expression of that. Like it's a reader, a person who loves books, reaching out for some kind of connection with other people who love books. Yeah. And that's a perfectly valid hey, reason totally. to yes, do a thing. Exactly. Like we yes. built a website so that readers could connect <laughs> right. With, <laughs> with, right. Right. with other people. That's a motivation that we understand and can get down with. Um, but it, it does seem like maybe just shift the conversation. Like mm -hmm. it doesn't, like that is noble too. connecting people who love books, who want community. Like that's a good enough reason. It doesn't have, we don't have to pretend that little free library opens up access in book deserts right. if it really doesn't. Yeah. It's good enough to say, this is a way for readers to connect with each other. I, I think there is something to be said for, you know, it's almost the book equivalent of like, uh, you know, putting the American flag on your house or putting up holiday lights. Like it's a statement about something that yeah, it's it's, an identity it doesn't have a, the utility might be secondary even to saying, I think books matter. You know, think of, you know, we know, we know that a lot of people don't read books, but it could be that, you know, there's someone who cares about books. Like we, we know this about social proof, right? We know this about, you know, being primed to think if you see you know books out even if you don't take one it's very possible that maybe you're going to be more likely to then go to the library or buy a book or thinking about buy a book or thinking about getting your kid a book or something else like that so i just i don't want to come across as saying i don't think there's any value to it i think it's probably more difficult to measure than maybe yeah. they would like it to be, because um, like even in their, even in their little blurb for it, and trust me, I spent some time on the Little Free Library site trying to like get a sense of what they're trying to do. Like they cite this stat that says uh, uh, one of the most successful ways to improve the reading achievement of children is to increase the access to books, especially at home. And they link to the study we've talked about before. Well, it turns out this one is really about being book, having books at home. So even in even in what they're citing, it's not. There's no evidence, I guess is what I'm saying, that backs up that having little free libraries in a community does anything measurable. Now, that doesn't say it doesn't, but there's no evidence. So if there's no right. evidence, you're sort of going on feel or gut, which in the absence of evidence, as we know from thinking fast and slow, is totally fine. But I also mm -hmm. think Warren saying, what is it do I want to do? Do I, do I want to do this in this way? Or is there something else I'd rather be doing with my dollars and my time and attention? Make the decision for yourself. But I think going into it, clear-eyed is very helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's also a prompt here to like ask better questions yes. about Little Free Library. If we're going to measure something about Little Free Library, is the thing that we want to measure, like what this was this a book desert before and is it one yeah. after a Little Free Library? Or do you want to measure like people's community feelings about like mm -hmm. how important books and literacy are in their neighborhood and if that changes before and after you have one? Because again, that's a really valuable yes. Thing, but some of this seems to me like Little Free Library, you know, could could have positioned itself, or maybe could pivot um, how it's positioning the mission of a Little Free Library and the folks who run them. Like, it should be totally okay to say, "I want to do this because I'm a reader and I love books and I mm. want to share books with my neighbors." Like, that's that's good enough. It's yes. like putting on a T-shirt that says "Yay Books" and wearing it out in the world and hoping that someone else who loves books will recognize it and start talking to you about. Right. how they love books too. Right. You know, like that sort of identity signifier to other people is important and it provides an opening for connection and it provides a way to share the thing that you love with your community. And there's all sorts of great side effects of having books out in homes and out in communities. Mm. But like, let's, it's cool if we need to just be real about that's what it's doing. It would be, I mean, you could imagine uh, a, 
uh, survey you could do if you took, you know, found a couple of similar demographic zip codes or neighborhoods or something, one that has four or five little free libraries and one that has none. Yeah. And see, is it different? Like there's a little cause and effect. Correlation is not causation. But it'd be interesting to see, like, does the presence of a little free library do something for how people feel about books? Because one thing I don't know is like, how are these things used? This came up a little bit into the Insider Slack. Like what kind of books are in there? What are people doing with them? Like once I've put books in the little free library, what is my expectation? What's really going on? I'm, you know, I think those are all interesting questions. Um, but I think what is it? This is one of those, you know, what what is is this advocacy for something? And if it is, do you care about ROI or not? And if you don't, that's totally legitimate. But if you do, that might be a different question, right? Yeah. Um, that something else is is going on. Um, all right, let's let's move on down the line. Um, this was from a story a couple weeks ago that we never got around to uh, about the, I guess what will now be the Games of Thrones Entertainment Industrial co- Complex. It's uh, looking that way. Where let's see, this original was yeah a couple weeks ago, 16 May um, was the original story about. There's going to be five Game of Thrones prequel spinoff on tv on tv which i have to say i am uh, i might be shocked by i'm not shocked by one i don't think i'm shocked by two but somewhere between two and five i'm shocked (laughs) somewhere man that's like five spinoffs is an act of huge faith like I spinoffs guess that so. are currently on prestige TV. There's Fear the Walking Dead, which is airing at the same time sometimes mm-hmm. that The Walking Dead is airing, but is a prequel. And Better Call Saul is a Breaking Bad prequel mm-hmm. of sorts. And I can't think of anything else like prequels. And uh, like pr- this. Well, this there's been several Star Trek prequels i think that are prequels to the original 60s show but not simultaneously uh and is that like i'm I'm not a star trek fan so this is not shade it's a real question is that like the same level of like prestige television like you can spin oh i don't know i no i don't think there's ever been a star trek show on cable yeah i don't know I'm not sure. I, I again, I lost track somewhere along. No, I think Deep Space Nine was on like the CW or WB or something like that. Uh, anyway, but certainly not all at once um, like this. I I've got a lot of questions about this. One is, am I really that much the minority that I just do not care about prequels? I mean, maybe it was Star Wars, but like every time there's like a prequel thing, I'm like, I do not care. Fantastic Beasts don't care. Uh-huh. You know, like the Star Wars prequels, don't care. Like even the big franchises I like, I'm like, I do not care about prequels. Yeah, I, I'm in that boat with you. So maybe it's a two-man boat Yeah, um, and we could be the, the only ones. But right. I'm totally in that boat. Like I'm watching Better Call Saul. I loved Breaking Bad. The writing on the show is terrific. And there, it's an interesting – like it's a different – it's a totally different feel and mm. almost a different like world of the show um, with uh, with different – 
with a different, you know, focus character and a different set of problems. And it's more just that like, it's like if Matthew Weiner wrote something that was said in the fifties instead of the sixties that right. like happened to maybe feature Roger Sterling <laughs> instead of Don Draper. Oh my God, I want this to exist. Yeah. But would you be, I mean, you'd watch it, but what it, I guess the way I feel is like, it's like an echo of the original thing. Like, yeah, I'm more around it for the the penumbra of interest than right. direct interest. Yeah. And the, like, the time with the characters, maybe this is, a, some of my antipathy here is driven by the fact, like, I don't care about Game of Thrones. Yes. So, and it's just not my flavor. And so I can't, like, I can't get interested in the main event. Mm. So I can't fathom, like, having five. Well, that's why I have to sort of think about it by proxy. While we're ta- that's why we're talking about Breaking Bad or Star right. Wars, something we actually care about. But even those were like... Oh, yeah, I, I just don't I'm, get I'm it. Good I don't with, get it. I'm good with one. It feels like it's got it. Like at some point, the story will get too thin, right? Like Better Call Saul. It's one character, two actually, two main characters of Breaking Bad that we're seeing their lives like a decade before mm-hmm. the Breaking Bad incidents, and then one of the villains we're starting to meet him. So you're sort of putting together like what these people were doing before they got to the Breaking Bad world. But my sense of it is that that show is not going to run like right up to when Breaking Bad would have right started. Um, and I just don't, I don't know, like how. If they had spun it out to like there's one show about Saul and there's one show about Mike and then there's another show um, with Giancarlo Esposito, I just don't know that like all three of those would have been any good. Putting them in one works well, but like five? I don't know. Maybe there's more side stories in Game of Thrones that we're discounting. Well, there's a bajillion characters. And I I guess reading this article in The Guardian um, that the link will be in the show notes about like more thinking about not necessarily set around the same characters, but in the secondary universe of Westeros, which is like, you know, like, I guess it would be like there'd be more... Lord of the Rings movies set in Middle Earth, but they're not about the characters we know. They're just using that sort of lore, mythological legend system. Um, so interesting that I guess it's all prequel. I guess I'm just not interested enough in prequel. Like if I know what's going to happen, I guess it's interesting. But five of them, and I wonder. It t- I guess maybe it tells us something about what is or isn't going to happen by the end of a song of uh, ice and fires, like. Either Martin can't imagine beyond the end of it, or something's going to happen where what's going to happen, any show that would happen after the end of what we see is not going to be interesting, mm-hmm. or it's going to be something else, or maybe he can just turn over the the mythological system to HBO, and they can do whatever they want with it, because it doesn't affect like the, the, the trunk of the tree of his story, yeah. um, seems possible to me. But I, I guess there's also no precedent for five related scripted shows to be on at the same time. Like, I mean, even like Real Housewives or Survivor, anything, you know, only like the reality shows, can you do a bunch of them? Maybe one or two, like, you know, the the what was the challenge and the real world could happen at the same time. But like, <laughs> oh, right. to, to imagine a situation where there's five, I guess, scripted shows set in the same world is unprecedented uh, as far as I can tell. I mean, like they must really, really have faith in how big the world of these stories is that it can hold up five shows on its own. And do you like kind of side question? Do you think people are just crying that this means it will probably take him even longer to finish the sixth book? (laughs) Uh, I mean, 
that would be my fear or concern if I were on pins and needles waiting for the next one. My guess is that HBO, no, I mean, if you're an HBO exec and you're, these are going to be millions of dollars per episode to produce, you are not pinning the success of these shows on Martin's ability to write them. So I'm guessing it might be a James Patterson sort of situation where he outlines or consults or whatever, but the actual production of the story and dialogue and everything else might be, you know, or even largely out of, out of his hands. Mm-hmm. I just don't see how you can, at this point, you know, tie your, tie your ship to, to Martin making progress on story. Not that that's a critique of Martin necessarily, just as this, no one's ever done five in a row and Martin's slow to write these giant books. Seems like if that was really a condition of it working, that is uh, setting yourself up uh, for failure. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know. He said he pitched two possible shows in August of 2016 and then they kind of uh, got spun out from there. I hmm. I guess I also don't equate, you know, on our hierarchy of franchises, I don't put this up there with the big ones. Maybe it, maybe yeah. that's a TV bias thing and that's not fair. Um, but I don't put it up there with Star Wars, Marvel, Harry Potter, Star Trek. Those are the kinds, of, I, I would rank it way up, high but as a, as a cut or two below those um and i would expect those kinds of worlds to, to be able to sustain something like this. i guess the the closest equivalent like was marvel is doing on the netflix series where jessica mm, jones and luke mm-hmm. cage and daredevil and iron fist they're not happening simultaneously but they're 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 kind of alternating seasons coming out so every year you're getting a 10 episode uh defender show right but they're not all together so maybe and something like that yeah it's work. interesting it seems like they're doing the marvel example that's a really interesting example and it seems like they're doing that kind of in lieu of making movies about all of those yes, that's characters yes. like the top line marvel characters get the movies yeah, right. and then these ones that are that are really interesting and that do have passionate fan bases but like not as much it's like being a b plus mm-hmm. celebrity i think get the netflix shows and i agree with you i haven't ever really thought about it about game of thrones not being in that at least in my understanding of like prestige TV, that like Mm -hmm. sort of top tier of show universes. Like, will we be talking about the game of Thrones TV phenomenon like 20 years from now? I don't know. Um, But yeah, TV tends not to hold. I mean, again, the exceptions are the exceptions for a reason. Like it's your star Trek's like, but you know, no one's clamoring. I don't think right now for a cheers reboot or mash. Like it just doesn't, well, maybe they are. I don't know. Maybe they just won't do it. Like maybe, maybe if you, you know, the, the they're just not set up to be a, five new series set in the world of Friends. Like that just wouldn't, ha- you know, it's just like yeah. that, that wouldn't happen because it's so character dependent. This one's sort of suggesting that the thing of interest is the the universe, the world, the mythology, which which might hold up. Um, I was just shocked. Is really the only way to five one even two? I was like, okay, they're going to take you know a couple, but five is a huge bet. Um, and it also, I think, we are in the greatest time ever, I think, to have adaptable mm-hmm. IP right now, like mm-hmm. between your Hulus and your Amazons and Stars and what, I mean, HBO and Netflix and Amazon, I, even Apple is getting into the big. So if you have one of these franchises um, to sell, there is appetite for them. And if HBO is the thing you have to get to get Game of Thrones, 
then maybe it's worth it for HBO just so that it differentiates itself from Netflix and Amazon and the other those places. We have it and you don't. And if it's must-see TV for a lot of people, you know, it becomes kind of like the NFL, where if you have the NFL, you, you kind of have enough ballast to survive almost any kind of um, competition from someone who doesn't. Fascinating. Really fascinating to see it. I, you know, I, I'm guessing that he's willing to do it. I mean, you know... Uh, JK could get a deal like this if she wanted oh, well, to. Yeah, um, and this is Star not the kind Wars of money you turn do something down. Like, Star Wars could do something like this, and they don't, which I think is interesting. Um, but I guess he has the ability as an individual person now, where Star Wars is now owned by a giant company, and JK has her own, you know, relationship mm-hmm. with the Universal and other things. I mean, she could do it, but you know, there's there's not that many franchises that one dude is the decider on, I guess is right. what I'm trying to say. Look at the Tolkien, you're in the a Tolkien estate. Good luck with that. That's mm-hmm. the Star Trek zone by CBS. So of available tier below Mount Rushmore franchises, there's one that's available with a living creator that can give you authority to do it. That's that's just as exceptional, I think, right now as five spinoff shows. So yeah, maybe it makes true. sense. Maybe it makes mm-hmm. sense. It'll be interesting to watch as an experiment as well. Like, if for no other reason, I'm going to be really interested in how does this work? Right. And, yeah. How does it? I mean, I guess you have to give it to several different teams. I mean, these are also limited series, so it could be that they're not going to be running same time. Maybe some of them, you know, these things take forever to make, as we've seen from la- the last couple of seasons of Game of Thrones. There's a lots of time between them, and I think you know there's six, seven episode seasons for the final season. So it could be if these are limited seasons every other year for each episode, e- each series. Maybe it won't feel as flooded. You know, there's mm-hmm. a spring and fall, spring and fall right. every other year. That's four shows right there. So, you know, that might, that, might, might, that might feel like Jessica Jones, Daredevil, that kind of cadence um, might make some sort of sense. So I, I've kind of talked myself into it, weirdly, <laughs> yeah, I guess, here. Have. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I sort of assume that HBO and Martin know what they're doing, and I don't. So I'm trying to go from that, like... They have a reason and a vision of how it could work, and I'm just looking for some analog. And, and I guess it could work. I guess mm-hmm. it could work. I mean, it could. It'll be really interesting to see how they make it work. Um, speaking of J.K. Rowling, yeah, let's go. For, let's do, do franchises. A little. Talk to about this one. Up. Yeah, we talked. Man, I don't even remember how long, long ago we talked ago. about this, yeah. but there was a, a a rumor that was circulating a while back that J.K. Rowling and Stephen Fry had not quite a falling out, but that Stephen Fry had been like condescending to J.K. Rowling about something, I don't even remember what, at some point, and that after she discovered that when recording the Harry Potter audiobooks, he had difficulty with the phrase, Harry pocketed it, Mm -hmm. uh, that she, the rumor was that she, you know, heard that he had had trouble with that phrase, so she wrote it into all the books. Like, she made sure that all of the Harry Potter books included the phrase, Harry pocketed it. Which is is tough. It is tough. And the the rumored misstep was that he would go, Harry pocketed it in it, you know, (laughs) and you can, that's exactly what I would do if I were recording that phrase over and over. Um, But the rumor was she put that phrase into all the Harry Potter books so that Stephen Fry would have to say it when recording them and like be embarrassed that he Mm. was having a hard time. And I remember being like, this is, if this is real, that is some good, like tiny, petty revenge. That's like the miniature troll, a trollette. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, just a good little stick it to him. Um, but it was confirmed this week by J.K. Rowling herself that Stephen Fry was not, in fact, condescending to her, mm. but was 
completely lovely and that there are four Harry Potter books in which the phrase Harry pocketed it doesn't even appear. <laughs> so she doesn't really say like – How we in the heck really... does something like this get started? Yeah, that's like, what I was going to say. There's no real indication of where – oh, no, there is an indication. <laughs> oh, the, there is? The tail – it's the very bottom of this piece. Uh, I, I, I don't know that I made it all the way down. I have to. The tale was first related by two Reddit users. Okay, oh, well, there we go. Wow, that's, Reddit uh, as your source of real news. Let's. <laughs> this is your first problem. Two Reddit here. users. Okay, great, perfect. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was uh, related a year ago after they'd attended one of Stephen Fry's live stand-up shows, where he first relayed the story, mm. according to. That. So since then, the tale has spread like wildfire. Um, so J.K. Rowling is setting the record straight. We, I guess it, the open questions are, did Stephen Fry say this during a stand-up show? Right. And if he did, was it a joke? <laughs> it sounds like a, it's, I can imagine what happened. And I thought this before, like, and he's, he probably said something like, and I could never say the phrase, and Harry pocketed mm -hmm. it. He says, and I think, or, you know, just to get me, get me back... J.K. She, I think, I think she wrote it. You know, you can kind of see like that's the kind of thing stand-ups do. Where you, they right. say something that sounds like a real story or anecdote, but everyone is like they're all in on the joke that this is just something they're mm -hmm. saying. Uh, I, you know, it's funny. I was we were talking about it's like it is weird that series how much clothes are important. Like you get freedom through clothes, your hat, your robes, your shoes, you got, and also small pocketable items. You know, like you know, there's just it is it is a weird. Uh, idiosyncrasy of that series that having items on your person and where you are keeping them, whether it's a key or whatever, is so important to so many mm -hmm. of the plot lines that I'm not surprised. It's not surprising that that phrase comes out because Harry's yeah. also always hiding a map or a or a, a, a an elixir or something like that. And mm -hmm. where else are you going to put it? You're a kid. You got to put it right. in your pocket. You got jeans. Also, yeah. apparently backpacks are disallowed in the world of Harry Potter. They're always carrying their books around in their arms. I never <laughs> understood are. that one either. It's a nice – it just looks more quaint, you know, to rush around the halls yeah. of your beautiful, uh, gorgeous college with your books in your arms. And if you're like an undergrad lit student yes. in search of a thesis topic, the significance of pockets in Harry yes. Potter, there you go. You're welcome. Uh, and now we can blame this rumor on these two Reddit users, which I guess, you know, it's not like Redditors are known for their do senses robes, of do humor. Do robes have pockets? Generally speaking, do you know the kind of robes uh, you'd wear in an English boarding school? I don't know. I think I wrote... Excellent I've rode a robe question. twice to like graduations, but right. I don't I've, think th those are like nine dollar rentables yeah, that you right. can throw away. They're basically glorified right. they garbage melt bags. If you look at them. The yeah, right. Yeah, 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 right. You, can, <laughs> yeah. you put you put your leaves in them after raking the yard after you're done with I them. I have only worn robes for like high school choir and for graduations, and none of those had pockets. But maybe fancy robes that you wear every day, kind of as a garment would have pockets. Like I rejoice when I get a dress that has pockets yeah. well, in it. Well, that's what so, I was saying because famously women's or I guess anyone who wears yeah. dresses, dresses do not typically have pockets. And I was wondering if there was some sort of robe exception, you know, that they can have pockets or maybe there's I'm, side access where you can get at your, your, you know, your underclothes <laughs> pockets. Cause they're not naked under there. They're not, they're not, the students of Hogwarts aren't there. It's not them and the sunshine under there. They're, they're wearing their, they're wearing their proper clothes. So they got their pockets in there. <laughs> I'm going to believe that Professor McGonagall is a practical lady, and yeah. if for no other reason than that, there are pockets in robes. Also, you could just magic some pockets into your robes. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so there we go. I think we did maybe more on pockets in Harry yeah. Potter than we were intending. Who knew that this is what we were going to be doing? just enough. Just Today. enough.
Uh, tell me about our next sponsor. I'm going to say a special of secret special things. Alcrate is our next sponsor. Um, they're back this week. We talked about it a little bit before. I'm going to start at the bottom of the read and go up just, just for something different. They, Alcrate has their new Alcrate Junior box. Um, the books and goodies in the box are tailored to boys and girls ages 8 to 12. I think we said that's sort of middle grade-ish mm-hmm. uh, to use uh, the book classification jargon. At least one of the three to five goodies included in each Alcrate Junior is a usable activity, so you can encourage creativity, imagination, exploration. Alcrate itself, their, 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 their regular Alcrate box is for YA, includes a new hardcover young adult novel, as well as a whole bunch of bookish keepsakes to help set the mood for your literary adventure. They come every month, um, and it's a monthly subscription service, and each one is different. Each one has a different theme, and you can get a nice little discount. Use offer code BOOKRIOT10, all one word, to get 10% off. That's Alcrate. The, the main box is YA-centered, and the out, new Alcrate Junior box is um, 8 to 12-year-olds. So if you're, it's summertime. Sometime soon we're going to start thinking about the holidays. would be a great gift. Um, for someone in your life that likes a, a young adult kind of topic or theme, or you got a younger reader. Also, those kinds of kids, especially teenagers, don't have a lot of money themselves necessarily. Hard to get to the library, maybe. So every few every month, you're going to be able to give them something that reminds them of you, helps them read, finds them something interesting to do. That's not TV or video games or the internet or something else. Be a really nice gift to think about for you or for someone else. That's Alcrate. O-W-L-C-R-A-T-E, all one word. You can find it online. All right. We're running out of time here for the many things that we have on uh, our let's agenda. Let's talk about the sponsorship model for the Women's Prize for Fiction. I thought that was oh, interesting. Do okay. you like that? Or are you going to go somewhere else? I just stepped all over where you were going to go. <laughs> no, I had not read deeply about that, but you teased it. So why don't you tell me about it? Um, so basically, uh, The Women's Prize for Fiction, which has been known in the past as the Orange Prize, the Bailey's Prize, uh, has had trouble every now and again, you know, getting a sponsor at the last minute. I think there's maybe even one year they went without a sponsor, and they give a pretty big cash prize, a 30,000-pound sterling cash prize um, for an outstanding achievement um, in fiction written by a woman, but... They got an anonymous donor to pony it up for perpetuity. And as you might know, that's a long time. So they're all set. They're all set. So I'm guessing someone must have given them about a million pounds as an endowment. Um, Really, really interesting that someone came up as an individual who didn't want the publicity to give it uh, an endowment, which... I did not. I saw this headline float across Twitter. And I was like, huh, are they going to crowdsource it or a publishing deal? Nope. Just straight cash money from, I would say, a candidate for Hero of the Year. Mm-hmm. I think, I mean, uh, anonymous uh, Mr. or Mrs. X or Mr. or Ms. X or just the anonymous X, I guess, is probably um, fairer to all involved. A lot of money to keep this prize going. Really, really mm-hmm. fascinating. Congratulations Very cool. to them. Um, I think it's – though I realize that I wish it had a name we could call it besides Women's Prize for Fiction. I don't know. I'm just used to like the National Book Awards. I guess we call it yeah. the, the WPF or something well, like that. I just have to get used to it. The like word order feels clunky to me. Like could yeah. it not be the prize for 
fiction. Well, it's not the prize for women's fiction because women's yeah, fiction, fiction is its own, its own weird thing, genre right. thing. But like, I don't know, the lady power fiction prize. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, right. It, that women's prize for fiction just uh, that. Like those that this particular word choice just doesn't work for me. Yeah. Uh, well, like the one thing that the Pen Association does is it like names it after an author, Pen Faulkner, Pen Hemingway, right. things like that. So you could choose if you wanted to um, uh, an, an author, a writer, artist, or something to be the the Morrison Prize. Oh, the Morrison Prize. I like that. Right. Or even like the Fiction Prize for Women Writers or something, or the Prize for Fiction by Women. I don't know. None of it's unclunky. Yeah. I guess that, I don't know that any of that solves this, the feeling of genericism. Maybe it's just because it's had the Orange or Baileys before. And I could remember mm-hmm. that's the Orange or Baileys. That's why those sponsors do that because you think of those names. Right. <laughs> it's hard. I guess the National Book Award is pretty generic. That's a pretty generic name. Yeah. But it tells you what it is. Like the Booker Prize, like, do you even know who Booker is? Like, who's Booker? No. Like, and it kind of doesn't matter, but it's like, oh, that one. Well, the Women's yeah. Prize for Fiction is just... I couldn't tell you who Booker is. Like, the only Booker that I know is the bourbon. I feel like I've looked it up seven times, and it just falls out. Have. I just has fallen out of my head. This, I mean, this this isn't really a critique, necessarily. It's like, because I saw the headline, like, the Women's Prize for Fiction, what the heck is that? It's like, oh, it used to be the Bailey's Prize, and I'm just going to get used to it. So maybe you guys write into us. What what should we do? The WPF? The WP? Yeah, we'll just what, what should we that. call it? The WPF. Um, 30,000 pounds sterling. A year. Cool to so, see that. Yeah. Cool to see that rolling. Speaking of big money for interesting things. Oh, there you I was, go. Nice. I was going to pivot to stories about things that you put in your ears. Yes. Um, the this New York is Times cool. reported this week that Amazon has created, uh, with Audible in particular, a $5 million fund to commission new works from emerging playwrights who will write uh, one or two person plays that then will be available on Amazon. Audio fiction is having a moment, they say, and mm. in the realm of podcasts, Audible plans to draw from the vast pool of young writers to create one or two person plays. They will be available beginning late this year. Playwrights can apply for grants to cover both industry standards for new commissions and the cost of production. Mm. Um, and they're hoping that people come out of the woodwork for it. Like I have to say, I think this is really awesome. I think it's awesome um, too. Audible is doing such interesting things in their experiments of like what besides book content can we make available to people. Mm-hmm. Plays are just ripe for adaptation that way. But in what other universe are, do new playwrights stand to make like really any money at all, but especially to be part of a pool of $5 million? See, for- I know. I mean, it's interesting how divorced the world of um, theater and play writing is from this, the the publishing world because they 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 seem like cousins, but they in practice are more like distant cousins. And so yeah, that's, that's a, all a preamble for me of saying I this never occurred to me as something <laughs> to, for Audible to do. But once I saw, I was like, that's so smart. Yeah, it makes so much it makes sense. so much sense. Yeah, like if you're a playwright in an MFA program right now and you're like. How the hell am I going to pay these mm-hmm. loans back writing my plays? This is, as far as I know, like really a, an excellent shot um, if you get it. We don't have any information here about like how much money right. an individual playwright will be able to request or apply for out of that $5 million total. But I'm feeling pretty confident betting that it will be more than you would get for like mounting your play at a mid-sized city uh, play. Yeah, it could be. I don't know about that. What I... 
my understanding for the theater is that the obstacle isn't necessarily the fee for the playwright, which I'm sure every I'm, I'm sure working playwrights could get could stand to get paid more, but the whole apparatus of just putting it on, like mm-hmm. the the actors and the costumes and the lighting and the sure. the ushers and the unions and the whole thing, it is a mess to try to even. Um, get a, a moderately sized non-musical production on the boards. And this makes all kinds of sense because that's the other thing that's gated in you know the, the world of uh, proper, I guess we call it bricks and mortar theater since you and I know the jargon so well of theaters, uh, <laughs> is that also reach, right? You can only show it to however many people you can fit into your theater at one given time where one thing we've learned about podcasts and audiobooks and digital media at all is it scales beautifully. Um, now that server costs and data transmission costs are, you know, virtually negligible, it'd be the the, the price of one sandbag uh, on the theater to distribute it through Libsyn or something else like that makes a whole ton of sense for me. Uh, from my point of view, I think also in that world of you know, not unlike the story about HBO wanting to get in on the Game of Thrones um, bag and, uh, bandwagon in a serious way, this is a way for Audible to defend its already impressive position in audio content Mm -hmm. because audiobooks you know that are recorded versions of regular printed books that's a commodity right that could be on itunes could be on barnes and noble anywhere what's become special for an hbo or somewhere else like that is you can get stuff here you can't get anywhere else um i've wondered i wondered if uh, audible's ever made a play for like radio lab or oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. cereal, right? Why wouldn't they just throw a buck, like a, a metric ton of money at the, the cereal folks or Gimlet to just come and do shows for them in-house, like the HBO model? I wonder why that isn't happening. There must be reasons. Maybe I'd, something else is going on. I guess I don't understand there. But that would seem like a natural partnership where Audible could go to these places that are making really good quality podcasts that have a loyal fan base built in mm-hmm. and say, with your Audible membership, you get access to Serial. Right. And seems pay like them, it would make sense. It seems like if you're the Serial folks, then the offer you need is just something that's more than what you're making from your existing yeah. advertising. Well, and theoretically, I mean, I don't know how the big boys do it. The big boys and girls do it. Like, are they doing, You then you won't have to worry about getting your ads in. You, right. know, you don't have to worry about direct sales and doing the reads. I mean, we see this on a very small scale here, but you got to sell the ads and then you got to fulfill them. And then if you don't get the, you know, you have a downloads that people are expecting and blah, blah, blah. And again, it's not onerous and we're small, but I can imagine if like, was it S-Town got like 40 million downloads or something like you're talking big dollars for an advertiser mm-hmm. and that's a lot of handholding. Um, whereas if someone like Amazon or HBO wants to right. come cut you a check, produce 12, this is 12 episodes, this is your budget. I mean, that could, I could see how that could be appealing. Do you see like sound effect? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah I like nice. that. <laughs> Maybe Audible will give us a deal just for our little stick here. Very high tech here. Yeah. Anyway, I thought this was amazing. If so, if you know a playwright, yeah. or you are a playwright, I think this is something – I have a friend. I have a couple of friends actually. I was like, mm-hmm. have you seen this link? And they're like, huh, that's interesting. Yeah, it so. is interesting. It's very cool. Very Should cool. that be our show? It feels like a show. It's our show, yeah. Our show. We'd love to hear – um, still, if you have a little free library, you've had great experiences. One thing I realized talking to people this week um, on email and other places is I don't know that many people that have like interesting anecdotes about the little free library. And so I could be just, you know, very misestimating uh, 
you know, the kind of activity that happens around it, where people get books, what kind of things come out of it. I just don't know. And I find myself fascinated um, about it suddenly. So I want to hear more stories, pros, cons, in-betweens, complications, uh, uh, edification, please. Uh, podcast at bookriot.com. Um, also, uh, if you're a Game of Thrones fan, are you excited about the uh, the multiple the multiple universe the, the multiple franchise no the multiple series um, future of Game of Thrones in Westeros if that's you know on a scale of one to ten tell me how excited you are ten being as excited as you can be for a cultural document and one being I wish this wasn't happening and <laughs> is that that sounds like a fair scale. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I think 10 is, as Liberty would say, I couldn't be happier if I swallowed a cat and broke out in kittens. <laughs> Thanks to our sponsors this week, Amazon Kindle and the script spelling bee, Third Love, and Alcrate. We'll talk to you guys next week. Have a good one.